Hello and welcome to the Indian Ocean World podcast. I'm Sam Gleave-Riemann, and I'm a research assistant here at the Indian Ocean World Center and McGill University, Montreal. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Julien Greshner, a recent graduate from the MA program in the Department of Geography here at McGill. And uh, today we'll be discussing his master's thesis from spring of 2023 entitled Solutions to Poverty According to Those Who Live It, Case Studies in Manyata B Informal Settlement, Kisuma, Kenya. Julien, welcome. And thank you very much. Nice to be here. Yeah, very, very great to have, finally have you. And we've been uh, trying to get you on the show for a couple months now. Uh, so I just want to start with a general question, as we always do. Can you tell us about the origins of this research project? You know, what led you to Kenya and to Manyata in particular? And what were your basic research questions? Yeah, sure. Um, so it's it's a long story, so I'll try to make it not uh, too long. But uh, essentially, when I was uh, doing my bachelor's uh, at McGill, I... I enroll in one of their field study semester programs. Um, they have uh, one of their programs in Africa and in East Africa, to be more precise, uh, we traveled to three countries, Kenya, Uganda and Tanzania. And that was back in 2019. And that was my first kind of uh, introduction to the region. So basically, this program brings a group of roughly 30 students to East Africa for a full semester during the winter. So you do all your credits there. Um, so that's when I first encountered this new environment. I had never been in the global south before, so that was a first for me. That's where also I, I met my supervisor, uh, John Unruh, uh, who was the director of the program, still the acting director today. Um, so for me, it just started as this big amazement in discovering this new this new region of the world, this new culture. Um, and just becoming very curious about it. And uh, after I came back from the program, I, I felt I had just scratched the surface and wanted to to explore more. Uh, so I stayed involved with the, the Miguel program and uh, been, I worked on it for the past uh, three, four years. Um, and every time I was coming back, uh, there was always this idea of doing a master's and uh, after do, redoing the program for the first time as a staff member, I decided that I should embark on this journey. And uh, and I used my time there essentially to inspire me into a original research project. And of course, what struck me when I was there was always how warmly we were welcomed by the locals and how knowledgeable they were about their, their areas and and what was going on. Uh, you know, we do a lot of field work during the Miguel program. So you get to interact with a diversity of actors all across uh, uh, the regions we visit. Uh, so I was just really curious about development from a bottom-up perspective. And that's kind of where my idea was born. And then the pandemic struck, which had a big impact on the project I ended up doing. Uh, so essentially, uh, the pandemic uh, started the, right after I came back from my second trip there. Uh, so that's the end of my first time as a staff member. Uh, so I was already uh, applied for the master's. Um, I had roughly an idea what I wanted to do. Uh, but now, was, was it feasible? So uh, to give context to the listeners, uh, fieldwork was kind of suspended for almost two years at McGill, international fieldwork at least. 
so when I came in, it was really not uh, clear if I would be able to do that project at all. So I had uh, either the, the choice of uh, waiting until things opened up again, which at that time, nobody knew when it would be, but everybody was hopeful it would be just a couple months. Uh, or changing my project. So I decided to stick with it and it ended up taking two years for me to go do my field work. But what I designed my project, uh, it's around local solutions for poverty reduction. I designed it in a very general kind of manner so it could adapt to anywhere I would eventually maybe be able to go. Um, so I, I guess that's the first part of the idea. I want to work on poverty. I wanted to work on bottom-up solutions. Uh, and then the second part of the story is how I happened up to go in that precise area of Man the Manyata, the informal settlement in Kisumu. Uh, so that actually only happened later in this project stage because I didn't know, I couldn't kind of go and explore potential field side because I couldn't go in the field. Uh, so I decided to use the time I had and start learning Swahili, which is the main lingua franca in the region. And I found a tutor uh, uh, on a platform called um, um, italki. Uh, essentially, it's like a marketplace for tutors. So you can find a tutor in the specific country you want to go. So of course, there's always language variations from country to country. So I wanted to go to Kenya. So I found a Kenyan tutor and he happened to be in Kisumu. And at first, it was I was just seeing him as a language tutor, and uh, I studied with him for over a year. And then it looked like things were opening up at the McGill side for field work. Uh, and he happened to have this school in 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 the Manitabian formal settlement. So we had become good friends at that point. He was well aware of the project I was doing, so I just talked to him about it and said, "Hey." Um, you know, what do you think about this project? Do you think it's something that's interesting and is something you might want to be part of? I think uh, where you, your area could be a really well, a good place to do it. And he was all for it. He loved the project. And that kind of where things started. That's that's how I picked my site. Because with the short time frame I had, I, I wanted to go, I needed to go to a place that if I couldn't visit before I do the actual field work, it would at least be familiar in some sense that I could have a very strong contact in the field to guide me through it. Because normally what I would do would be to visit the site. And then once you pick your site, you would come back later to do the actual project once you're really familiar. But because of the pandemic, I kind of had only one shot of going in the field and doing the research to finish in time my master's. So I had kind of to improvise. Yeah. Yeah, super interesting. Uh, I wonder if you could just like, I mean, I want to talk a little bit more about these relationships that you have, because is this tutor, uh, this was the friend that ended up becoming your research assistant on the project too, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So so that's a really interesting question. I was wondering if we can just define a little bit more clearly and a little bit more detail what the actual research questions are. What are were you trying to figure out through this research project? Okay, yeah, for sure. So what I was essentially I said the topics was the local solutions for poverty reduction. So mm -hmm. what I was interested in learning was about the local perceptions on poverty and potentially any development effort that was being done in the area. And then from there, uh, if they also perceived poverty as an issue in their community, 
um, looked at their ideas. Uh, so what do they think should be done uh, to improve the situation uh, in their area? Uh, and especially learning about the reasoning behind their solutions. So they have their lived experiences. They know their area very well. What are the ideas? And then why do they think these ideas would work? And my intuition was that through that process, you would learn um, more about the, the actual problems in the community by looking at the reasoning and understanding it to the best of your ability. Yeah, yeah, super interesting. And that does come out through through your thesis as well. Ducking back again to talk about your research assistant, can you talk a little bit about you know his involvement in the project, but also kind of the the day to day research process? What was your actual methodology on the ground to talking to folks? Yeah, for sure. Um, so essentially, uh, like I said, uh, my research assistant um, had started a school uh, in the in in the informal settlement um, about two years prior to my research. So um, he was really my, my, my way into the community because he was, he's well-known in the area. He's very well-respected because he brought us a really good school in an area that usually doesn't have them. Uh, he's very driven. Um, so through him, um, I kind of was able to uh, build this trust uh, with the locals because of course they, they see all sorts of people coming through. Um, and there's especially a big uh, impact. I'm sure we're going to talk about it later about positionality, me as a, a Western researcher uh, coming to that community. Um, but the day-to-day -day process, essentially what it looked like is uh, we were not trying to do a project where we would get kind of this uh, generalized uh, picture of everything that's happening in the community. Uh, we knew we couldn't do that with the, the time we had and, and the, the, the scope of a master's project. We really wanted to do more kind of an ex exploration of people's ideas, just to know what kind of ideas are out there. Is it very diverse? Is there some kind of uh, agreement or, or complete disagreement between people? Um, so we decided to pick semi-structured interviews to... Uh, to do our our projects, so it was basically one on one. Well, kind of, well, actually, it's two on one because there was my research assistant there as well. Uh, but the same the same ideas, the basic methodology, and and what we were doing is um, we had a list of predefined questions that we designed together beforehand. So essentially, we come from two very different backgrounds, different uh, cultures, different countries. So. The goal was to, by, by working together, that's why I wanted to have a research assistant. We could kind of design something that would meet both of our perspectives uh, and hopefully bring about more knowledge by mixing the two. Uh, so I designed the first questionnaire based on the research question I had around the local perception of poverty, the ideas people might have and the reasoning behind them. Um, and then revised it with, with my research assistant and found the right wording, um, then translated all of that into Swahili. Um, essentially, I had about an intermediate level of Swahili, and the area I was in had a, a lot of languages being spoken, Swahili being one of the main ones everybody understood, but my research assistant conducted several interviews when they were in a language I could not 
uh, speak. Um, so um, the English one I conducted, the Swahili ones uh, he conducted, and he also had his tribal language that did, we did a couple interviews in. So it was really a mix. And um, essentially the research interview process, it was up to an hour and um, taking the time before diving into the research questions to really kind of build a rapport with the respondent. Um, so it would be more kind of um, um, less formal uh, in a way, because there is, uh, I guess I could dive into it really now, but me coming in the community with the, the positionality aspect of it being a Western researcher, white male, uh, of course, it comes loaded with 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 uh, stereotypes uh, from the locals. Uh, stereotypes, but I mean that is preconceived images about possibly level of influence, male wealth, all of that. Um, so you have to take the time to negotiate that because one of the main issues I encounter during my fieldwork is that um, people would think that I'm affiliated with some big shot UN agency. And I have all this money coming into the community. Uh, and now they want, might want to lead me in a certain direction. So you really want to take the time to explain to people that you're, you're a student, where you're coming from, you, you're here to learn, all of that. This is something people can, can relate to. Um, but this is something that if you don't address, is going to taint the whole, the whole interview. That. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate how thoughtful you were about that uh, in your writing as well. And obviously, super, super important. Um, I wonder then, you know, what did people say? What were your findings ultimately in this? How did your respondents perceive poverty? And uh, and what did they consider like the significant factors for marking poverty, things like that? And obviously, that's going to be wrapped up in causes and solutions. So how did they identify those things as well? Yeah, so um, so there's a lot to unpack there, but I, I'd say from the get go, I was surprised by the level of agreement. And so mm -hmm. we did 32 interviews total, um, and I did not expect to have uh, so much commonality between all the interviews. Mm -hmm. um, so what came out was a, a full consensus around the local perception of poverty. Uh, so people. Uh, so part is a big issue in the area. Uh, they think more should be done about it. It should be mostly the government with the help of the community. Um, and they seem to uh, to perceive poverty more as a multidimensional phenomenon. So the most respondents spoke about poverty defining as an inability to meet basic needs. Um, and I asked them what some of these basic needs could be. And and most of them uh, mentioned food, clothing, shelter, sometimes access to education. So this was already a first find that was interesting. If we look at the history of uh, poverty and development for a very, very long time, things were only defined around income. It was like monetary measures of poverty. Um, the multidimensional uh, kind of school of thinking has really kind of been taking hold in the past 20 years, maybe. Uh, there's more and more interest in seeing this as a more complex phenomenon. 
So it was really interesting to hear from people who have not studied all the literature on that or look at the same rules. And the first thing that comes is this, is more like in this multidimensional view that there's more than just income to poverty. After that, uh, since they all agree that there was poverty in their community, uh, I wanted to ask about their ideas. So they said a lot of, a lot of different solutions uh so during my analysis i had to kind of find ways to group them in under certain categories so what i came out with was kind of six broad themes uh for the solutions um the first one and most common was uh employment solutions around employment uh so i guess i could talk a little bit about the reasoning behind each one of them as i go um but they're usually all linked to a perceived problem in the community uh, so if we look at employment, well, one of the main issues people were raising in the community is this big unemployment issue. And, you know, in Canada, when we think about unemployment, it's big around 10, 12 percent. Well, you know, in an informal settlement, uh, these are the most marginalized groups often in the society. So you can have levels going up all the way to 60 percent uh, among the youth. So it's, it's a really whole other level of unemployment. And this is what brings all these economic hardship in the community. So the unemployment issue was big in people's mind, and that's why they were suggesting solution to bring employment, create employment. And then the second solution was all sorts of ideas around sensitization on certain topics. Uh, the biggest one being poverty and the pathways out of it. Um, so people thought they should be programs uh, to kind of transfer that knowledge to the people in the community. So in poverty, there's, it's, it's very rarely like poverty that goes from generation and generation and stays there. It's possible, but most of the time we see it's a very dynamic phenomenon. So there's people who might have grown up in, in poverty, but then escaped it. And then there's people who might not have grown up in poverty. And then for some reason, some crisis that might have happened in their lives ended up uh, descending into poverty so there's really this 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 movement in and out all the time so people are trying to raise awareness on what can be done to move out and to prevent falling uh, into uh, into that state so so it was very interesting to hear that people uh, were not just thinking about income and how people can earn income it's also about knowledge and and um, leading into that, the, there's also uh, the third the third uh, solution, which was uh, business. So, if you have the knowledge, you might be able to start a business if there's no jobs offered. So people were also very um, uh, conscious of the fact that there's not enough jobs. So jobs need to be created. That means people need to create businesses that can employ themselves or others. Uh, so that was the other third main solution, which was if you have this, this mixture of, of knowledge and initiative, uh, you might be able to create the companies that are kind of lacking to offer employment in the community. Um, after that, there was also youth education, which was linked to this knowledge I was talking about, but more uh, for for the children in the community. So they say everybody should have access. Even though Kenya has uh, 
made the the primary and secondary school uh public and uh it's been the post secondary school has just been uh, uh about a decade so so it's still transitioning to be able to offer the quality and and, and the service to everyone schools are crowded so in general there's a perception that the public schools uh have not a a, a a level of education that's as high as in the private so you will see even in the informal settlement parents trying to send their kids to a private school uh, even though there's a public there for them there's a big problem of access because the public schools to access to the quality of education the public schools are crowded and even if they're free you still need to pay for the materials and the uniforms which often the households that are struggling the most cannot afford. So you would still find uh, situations where uh, families that are struggling are keeping their kids out of school because of that that barrier. Uh, it's, it's, it has improved a lot in the past uh, 10, 20 years, uh, but there's still, when you go in the more marginalized communities, an issue there. And finally, the, the fifth solution and sixth um, the fifth one is empowerment. So that's more of the psychological aspect um, uh, of poverty for, for the community. Uh, you know, if you find yourself being employed for a long time, uh, it really has an impact on your self-esteem. And if you find yourself to be in the situation for too long, you can just get a job and, and turn around or create your own job and turn around. There needs to be uh, a program or something to help people build their skills and self-esteem to then potentially create their own their own income. Um, so that was also very interesting to see that the community also recognized that aspect. Um, and then finally, uh, the sixth one was the more the government, the political aspect of it. So people want better governance. Um, of course, in an informal settlement, uh, like I said, it's the most marginalized community. So, so you would often have find that people have a very there's a big gap, big disconnect with the government, the local government, the local officials. So people would mention that as being uh, a driver of poverty in the community because they don't uh, they don't find their the infrastructure and the services they should have access to, um, because you would often find you know just a tarmac road. Uh, how much it opens up the community to transport and and businesses. Um, and in the area I was in, uh, it, the, the road is, is really bad. Uh, and when the rainy season hits, you know, you can, it gets flooded and everything. So it really like kind of uh, brings barrier that don't allow the area to develop as much as the rest of the city. Um, so that's something they think the government is centrally responsible for the infrastructure. And if there was better governance, uh, it would help alleviate poverty in the community. Yeah. I, I find this super interesting because I, I, I shared my notes with you. Um, one of the things that I really picked up on in your thesis and in, in your analysis is how you identify, you know, the way that your, your interlocutors are talking about poverty as a communal problem rather than an individual problem. Right. Yeah. And I think you've talked about that really nicely there that even, you know, certainly government and education and, and jobs, these are communal issues and even self-esteem that feels like it has a communal aspect to it too. Do you have anything else you want to say, like kind of how your analysis uh, builds on that? Cause I do have a follow-up question here as well. Yeah, I think I can talk a little bit about that because you're not the first okay, yeah. one to mention that. Like, oh, it's so interesting that people always see this as a community issue less than an individual issue. 
And for me, I think it it, it really shows how different the situation is um, in the informal settlement. Because um, if you look at Kenya as a whole, uh, and you in sadly the only numbers you often have for poverty are the monetary measures. But if you put a poverty line at a certain amount of income per day, uh, normally if you follow the World Bank international poverty line, you would end up having a, a poverty rate that's in the 30% or something for countrywide. So of course you can imagine this is at the country scale, but you have areas that are doing very well, areas that are doing not as well. So if you go in an informal settlement, you can expect that, that that level of poverty to be much higher because these are more the marginalized communities. Um, so you could potentially speculate, and from what I've seen, that it's it's over half the population in those areas that are struggling. So, you know, when you go at such high levels, uh, it's not just an exception to the rule. Then it's it's like it's the situation that a lot of people are sharing every day. And then people are seeing it's affecting everybody around them or most people around them. So then people started seeing it as a as a, a bigger issue than just something um, uh, that is an exception. It's the it's the it's the norm in there in the area, and they want to solve it because it, they see it affecting a lot of people around them. Yeah, and I, you also touch on there one of the other kind of interesting theoretical questions that you have here, which is about the definition of poverty, right? So, can we use a monetary line like big international organizations are willing to do? Can you talk a little bit more just about like the the scholarly question of defining the poverty line and a little bit of the history of how people have attempted to do this? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, you know, what's interesting about looking at definitions of poverty is that uh, today there are so many programs trying to alleviate poverty. But uh, if you don't have a clear definition of what it is, then the solutions you want to put forward change or the people who even count as poor change. So through the literature review I've done, I found uh, four broad schools of thinking around this this issue um, the first one and it's the most common one uh, is the monetary line so that's the one I used to give a number so for, for a long time and it, it was very popular because it's just numbers uh, so it's it's easy to compute and it's easy to 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 document you want statistics people want to statistic to be able to measure have things improve or not. So this is the one that's been the most used and is still the most popular because there is this idea that you can easily measure progress. Uh, so the idea here is uh, you either use income or consumption level uh, as your, your kind of your variable. Uh, so normally in higher income countries, you might use income because those data are available for public tax record and stuff like that. Um, in countries like Kenya, most people um, are still living informally, so you don't have access to numbers like that. So people do either surveys and more look at their consumption level, so how much they're using daily uh, to live. So um, so you would come up with a number, and usually uh, the, the measure has been per day. So we heard that like a dollar per day line that was... A while back from the World Bank, it's been indexed. Now it's food uh, something, to dollar something, I think. Uh, so you would have that number, and then you would just look in your sample who's above, who's who's uh, who's below, and you come up with a percentage uh, or a total number of people. 
So that would give you your poverty rate. It's a, the, the percentage of people who are below the poverty line that you set as, as a threshold. Obviously, already there, you can see that that threshold is kind of arbitrary. You have to set it somewhere. And what happens if you're one cent over the line? Are you really that well off? You know, so there's always all these, these, these issues you also need to dealt with. But it gives this, this simple criteria. This simple criterion, and, and it's easy to compute. So it's been widely used. Um, of course, a lot of people such such shortfalls with that. So that's where the multidimensional measure came. So that's the second school of thinking uh, is to see poverty as more than just a lowness of income. So it's more than just the low income. So instead, you would say, well, there's income, but people say, well, there's also health. You know, uh, there's also education. There's there's all these different basic needs that. Uh, uh, often are contested which one is more important than the other. Uh, but this approach does not say the basic needs are this. So it says you need to agree on a set of basic needs. And then you would essentially uh, use a measure, an index for each of these ones. And then maybe you create a, a global index with all these. So for example, UN World Bank now have some of these measures. Uh, so they would say health, and then they would use one uh, index to measure health and then they would say uh, we also need education so they would probably see the number of years of schooling all of that and then they would compute a global index with that so what we find with these measures is that there is some overlap but not that much so so the people who are identified as poor or non-poor change so that's why uh, it has been it brought into light the importance of the definition you're using because the programs won't target the same people and they, ex they won't implement the same kind of programs. Um, then the third one, that, that's, uh, that's the social inclusion one, social exclusion one. So this one is more popular in uh, higher income countries uh, where you find a lower percentage of poverty usually. So it's, it's, it sees more poverty as a social phenomenon that excludes certain group from participation in the normal like economic activities or cultural patterns. Um, so this one, for example, in my case, was not used at all. And we talked about because there's this community definition. So they don't see it as a problem affecting just one specific group. They see it as a problem affecting the whole. Uh, but in, in, in higher income countries, like in Canada, we often have these uh, these these narratives are on certain groups that are more marginalized than others and are experiencing higher levels of poverty than the regular population. Uh, so if you have a measure like that, obviously you can get a number out of it, but it brings a whole different perspective on solutions. Uh, I mean, you want to hear things that can bring social change, help marginalized groups, and kind of repair some imbalances in your society. Uh, so this is very different than saying we just need to raise income and you, you bring about programs to to kind of give jobs or or transfer money or et cetera, et cetera. And then the fourth school of thinking, which is not a kind of a definition in itself, but it's an approach, is the participatory methods. So this one, it can be anything, but it has to be defined by uh, the people who are experiencing what, uh, what uh, you're trying to study. So it's a leave to the people experiencing poverty 
um, uh, the 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 task of defining what it is and 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 bring designing solutions. Uh, so this one is like we shouldn't impose a definition from outside or from the top. Uh, it should come from the bottom. Um, of course, I think the the shortfall of that approach is you have to have a mix all the time because uh, obviously you need kind of a an external measure to start with to be able to know which what kind of pe what people you want to work with uh, on this issue. So you kind of still need a way to to at least point you in the right direction. And but then um, for me, for example, what what I pick my 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 study site is everybody was saying this area has lower income than average. So there was kind of a broad agreement that in this area there were more people than average experiencing poverty. So I say, okay, let's go there and ask these people. Uh, what do they think? Uh, is the issue here and how it should be solved. So of course right, my well, project is kind of in yeah. the more the fourth one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But of course there has to be a bit of a mix. So I'm yeah. not going to ask you then to nail down what a definition of property, but maybe if we're looking towards the end of the, the episode here, based on your research and the kind of the definitions of poverty, what what do you think that the next steps for the manata informal settlement should be like do you have basic policy recommendations is there more research that needs to be done what do you think you know from the kenyan government perspective ngo perspective international perspective what what would uh, the people that you talk to uh, like what would they need yeah so i think uh, what comes out of my project is more research needs to be done so for me i think the contribution is is to show Kind of what's what's out there in terms of ideas, um, uh, but you no, know, a steady sample of thirty-two. Nobody should generalize with that. I, I worked in the uh, precise area of Magnata, so my goal here is not to have these huge policy recommendation. It was more to kind of challenge this idea that we can have one policy for all and and showing all the diversity at the bottom. Uh, but there, I think there's some general. Um, and practical implication that come out of the project, if you think about policy, about the, the government. Um, and if we talk about policy in general, um, what you see is that there is not a vacuum that needs to be filled uh, when you come into these areas. People already have clear ideas about the issues in their communities and how they should be addressed. So I think this is a big contribution because it would be easy to think if you go in an area that hasn't not seen any programs before that, okay, we need to start from, from scratch and, and build something. But the truth is that the people there have been experiencing what you're trying to address for, uh, for their whole lives if they've been there the whole time. So, so there are already realities there. There's already ideas there. And if you don't address them, well, you might be lucky and what you try to do it kind of intersects with what people are thinking, but if it doesn't, don't be surprised if people are not interacting with your program or not are not taking part. Uh, so I think that's one. I think that's one. The second one is, um, at least in the Magnata context, people also had clear ideas about how and by whom they would be helped, like to be helped. So it was really interesting to see the the level of distrust in their government, uh, they were they were dissatisfied with what was being done, yet they still were thinking that the government should be leading the poverty reduction. 
uh, efforts. So you could see that people thought this is a big issue. The government should be the first actor, then the community. Third, maybe humanitarian actors. So there was also consensus there that humanitarian actors, uh, they're welcome, but it should be in a secondary role. Um, so people also like to be um, put at the front of any initiatives. They don't like to be sitting in the back and a new program comes along and, and you know they're not having any impact on the design of these programs. And the last one I would say for the government um, is, is, is that level of distrust has to be addressed. So there is a big gap and a big disconnect clearly with the local population uh, in, in, that, in that area. So it could be because there's not enough action. It could be because they're not communicated well. But that, that distrust is there. That gap is there. The disconnect is there. So before any meaningful initiative can be done, that, that gap has to be addressed. Um, so there is at least this, this trust building so people will, will believe uh, that there is an action. And, and I, I threw some ideas out there. You know, a lot of people think there's a lot of corruption, so there should be more transparency. Um, there's obviously, it's a democracy in Kenya. There's a political process. It changes every couple of years. Showing a strong commitment to long-term improvement in the community would also help uh, because often it, it swings with the elections, the years of the elections. Uh, so these are just some ideas. Uh, but for the government, there is definitely something that needs to be addressed there. Yeah, as you say, it's a sample size of 32 interviews. It's not uh, not going to blow anybody's socks off. Um, we always end with the same question here. So uh, I'm going to ask it, but if you're don't have a clear answer yet. I know sometimes after an MA, people uh, want to get into the field, but I just want curious about what you're working on now and uh, if we can expect to see any new research from you coming out in the future or if you have any goals in terms of getting out back out into the field. So I, I like to go back in the field uh, eventually, but for now, um, my big, my big uh, project is transitioning uh, from my master's into uh, the workplace. Um, I love research and I love my field work, but I've been at university for a very long time. Uh, you know, before I was at Big Hill, I did uh, a bachelor's in software engineering. So it's been almost 10 years. So I'm, I'm really at the point where I feel I, I, I can learn more by trying something new. And for me, even my research has been fed by the experiences I've done outside of my, my studies. So I, I, I like to have this this more well-rounded view of things and 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 I'd like to try something different for a while. Um, I'm not uh, saying I won't ever do a PhD, but for now I feel like I need to uh, to uh, to try something different. Uh, I've always liked the field uh, a lot, so I'd like to find a job that brings me to the field. Uh, I like being really at the at the at the ground level work. Uh, of things and even though my master's was a really good learning experience i felt i didn't get enough of it because uh, of the pandemic no three years and i went to the field uh, two and a half three months so uh so yeah so i think these are my projects for now don't have definite answers but uh, i'm in that big more kind of project of transitioning uh, to something new that is a totally reasonable answer well i think 
uh, on that note, the only thing we have to say is thank you, Julien, for coming on the show. And of course, thank you to our listeners for streaming and downloading the podcast. My name is Sam Gleave-Riemann. You've been listening to the Indian Ocean World podcast. We would like to acknowledge the generous support of the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. The Indian Ocean World podcast is produced under the Shirk-funded partnership Appraising Risk Past and Present. The podcast runs in conjunction with the annual speaker series at the Indian Ocean World Centre at McGill University, Montreal. 